BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. In Prague, a man is making his way through the winter's cold over the Charles Bridge as the year of 1610 draws to a close. High on the hill before him looms the grand castle of his boss, the Holy Roman Emperor Rudolf II. It begins to snow again. Flakes settle on the man's coat and he pulls it tighter around him. Then his frown gives way to a look of elation. These tiny stars of snow have given him the answer to his problem. He hurries home and sets to work on a little book. The man is Johannes Kepler, a German astronomer who the Emperor Rudolf has appointed as court mathematician. His book is to be a New Year's present, but not to Rudolf. The emperor was often lax about paying Kepler's wages, and anyway, a man of common birth making his way in the intellectual world in those days needed all the patrons he could find. So he wrote the book to curry favour with a court councillor and nobleman named Matthaus Wacker von Wackenfels. Kepler gave it the Latin title De Nive Hexangula, on the six-cornered snowflake. It was a frivolity, really, a little diversion. And yet Kepler's genius led him to fill it with insightful speculations about minerals and geometry and pattern in nature. It was the beginning of the modern understanding of crystals. Kepler came to Rudolf's court as a young assistant to the previous court mathematician and astronomer. He devised new theories of how the planets move and how they are arranged. He supported the controversial idea that the Sun, not the Earth, is at the centre of the cosmos. And he was convinced that he could see divine pattern and harmony in the structure of the heavens, a music of the celestial spheres. These were tense times for a staunch Lutheran in the Catholic emperor's court. Rudolf was more interested in nature and philosophy than in theology and empire and he faced criticism for his religious tolerance. Later, in 1611, he was deposed by his hard-line brother. It was not a cosmic but an earthly pattern that Kepler wrote about in his booklet for Wacker. He begins it by saying that he'd been worrying about what to give his patron for a New Year's gift. The councillor was a man of wide interests. But some private joke now lost prompts Kepler to call him a devotee of nothing. And so he guesses that The closer a gift comes to nothing, the more welcome and acceptable it will be to you. But what gift would count as nothing? Kepler explained that he'd been crossing the bridge, anxiously fretting over the matter, when Just then, by happy chance, water vapour was condensed by the cold into snow, and specks of down fell here and there on my coat, all with six corners and feathered radii. Upon my word, here was something smaller than any drop, yet with a pattern. Here was the ideal gift, the very thing for a mathematician to give, who has nothing and receives nothing, since it comes down from heaven and looks like a star. (laughs) 
Kepler decided that in his booklet he would try to explain the intricate and symmetrical shape of these tiny flowers of ice. It had been pointed out in the Middle Ages, in fact, long before that in China, that snowflakes have six points, the same symmetry as a hexagon. But why, Kepler asks? What is the origin of the number six? Who carved the nucleus before it fell into six horns of ice? What cause is it that prescribes in that surface, which is now in the very act of condensing, six points in a circle for six prongs to be welded onto them? As he starts thinking the matter over, he begins to digress all over the place. The hexagonal snowflake makes him ponder the hexagons of the bee's honeycomb, even though the two things don't otherwise look alike. He points out that the square, triangle and hexagon are the only polygons that can be tiled together to fill a plane without any gaps, and that of these, the hexagons give the roomiest compartments with no tight corners, which makes them, he says, the best shape for the bee's cells. This sets him off wondering how spheres can be packed together in layers and in piles, like oranges on a greengrocer's stall or cannonballs on a ship. Kepler says that a layer of spheres can be stacked in a square pattern, each one touching four others, or in a triangular pattern so that each has six neighbours in a hexagonal shape around it. He claims that this hexagonal packing is the tightest possible, so that if layers of spheres like this are stacked on top of each other, you can get the maximum number of them into a container. It seemed a reasonable thing to suppose, but Kepler had no proof that it was true. And neither, for almost another four centuries, did anyone else. This so-called Kepler conjecture about the densest packing of spheres was not proved until 1998 by the American mathematician Thomas Hales. But what about those snowflakes? Kepler wonders if the snowflakes' symmetry and geometry arise from the packing of spherical globules of condensed vapour from which it is made. Perhaps so, but that won't fully account for why snowflakes are flat, ornate and hexagonal. Throughout Kepler's little book, he keeps going off on entertaining tangents, only to come back and scratch his head some more. He talks about the arrangement of petals on a flower, but that's no good because there's more often five of them rather than six. He talks about how there are six directions to animal bodies, up and down, front and back, left and right, but no, that doesn't help either. In the end, seeming a little desperate, Kepler turns to a mystical notion. There is then a formative faculty in the body of the earth, and its carrier is vapour, as the human soul is the carrier of spirit. So Kepler is saying snowflakes are created in a six-fold pattern by this formative faculty, which he takes to be a part of God's design. Hmm... But it's not quite so odd when you consider that some spiritual agency like this was all the natural philosophers of that age could come up with to explain the intricate shapes of animals too. Animals, though, were assumed to be made that way for a reason, so that they can function in the world. What could possibly be the reason for the snowflake's sickness, which melts away the moment it falls on your nose? Kepler's answer is both spurious and rather lovely. He says 
Formative reason does not act only for a purpose, but also to adorn. It is in the habit of playing with the passing moment. There's millions of snowflakes. This adornment, this play, is what carves out the feather-like arms of the snowflake. Are you persuaded? It's a curious, tantalising and perplexing mixture that Kepler serves up in his booklet, which today seems to be half science and maths and half mystical woo. But that's normal for the science of Kepler's day, when a rational understanding of the universe was still condensing from older ideas about occult forces and cosmic correspondences, numerology and astrology. Kepler himself was particularly apt to reason this way. His mathematical studies of the shapes of planetary orbits led him to one of the most important astronomical discoveries ever, which is that the planets move not in circles, but in ellipses around the Sun. That fact was crucial for Isaac Newton's theory of gravity half a century later. And yet Kepler was equally apt to speculate about cosmic harmonies in which the planetary orbits matched the notes of the musical scale or the shapes of regular geometric polyhedra. If we're going to make sense of Kepler's thinking then, we have to embed ourselves in his times, not ours. To help me to do that, I spoke to historian Yulinka Rublak of Cambridge University. Just who was he? So Kepler's life is so extraordinary to think about because he comes from what we would call a lower middling class family and he's picked up by the scholarship system that exists at that time and that's the only reason why he can go to good boarding schools and study at the university at all and he's very precocious so age 13 he's already a boy who doesn't like to work with his hands but wants to solve the most complicated riddles but you know he's really set up to become a pastor doesn't quite finish studying uh, becomes a math teacher in the city of Graz and then because he's a Lutheran and Graz becomes Catholic he has to go into exile and he goes to Prague at that point in which the Emperor Rudolf II has built up a quite extraordinary court of intellectuals and high-level politicians so in 1600 Kepler is able to join that mix and he becomes an imperial mathematician. And his work today is sometimes portrayed as a mixture of good hard science and kind of mystical mumbo-jumbo about cosmic harmonies. That's never seemed quite fair to me because, of course, what we call science today had a rather different shape back then. Yes, I think you're absolutely right that that would be very unfair. The first thing one needs to understand about him is that he's a, a Christian natural philosopher. I mean, he exclaims in the Snowflakes treatise that life without philosophy would be death. And that's his maxim. So, you know, he thinks of himself much more broadly, not just as a scientist, as we would think of it, but as someone who wants to really understand God as an architect who has shaped creation in the most marvelous way. And for Kepler, there are two elements to that. On the one hand, he thinks that regularity is an ordering principle that is fundamental to God and shapes patterns in nature in all sorts of ways. But the really interesting element for me in his thinking, which shows he's not just clockwork, a kind of mechanic thinker, is that he says, well, look, what's really amazing is that God is interested in playfulness. 
And that is what he brings out in the Snowflake Treaties as well. So God has tried things out, possibilities, all the time. And that is what we see in nature. We see it in fossils, we see it in minerals that the jewelers turn into stones, diamond cuts and so on. And we see it in pomegranates and the way in which seeds are packaged there, the bees comb, and we see it in the snowflake. Well, there's a sense, I think, almost of enchantment in this idea he has of a world governed and shaped by invisible spirits and these formative agents, so that everywhere you look, from the smallest snowflake to the structure of the cosmos, you can find order and design. I wonder if there was some solace even in an idea like that for someone like Kepler who was living through what were actually very turbulent times. I think that's exactly right. We have to remember that two things go on at this period. On the one hand, you know, the people we call scientists, natural philosophers are really very embittered people. They insult each other. They're very much at loggerheads. And the other thing is that, of course, the confessional divide is ever deeper. So Catholics, Lutherans, Calvinists, again, a lot of use of abusive words, a lot of tension there all the time, a lot of pressure, of course, on on Kepler himself to be become a convert and a Catholic. And a lot of theologians think very deeply about human nature as depraved. And they think about the presence of the devil in the world that makes everything worse all the time. They think about this world really being at the end of times. And Kepler's whole thought is directed against that. He's someone who's really excited about the new possibilities of empirical science, especially if you just observe and then really try to get to the core causes of phenomena. And that is what he tries to explicate in the snowflakes as well. And the the broader philosophy behind it is that he thinks that God has endowed everything he's created with a principle of beauty and that can be activated. So his positive vision is that if you only live really with that spirit, this beauty which we find, you know, which adorns human nature, say for instance in the geometry of dance steps, which he thinks are inborn, then life could be so much better, we could get to a principle of peace at last and create a different world. Well, this makes me wonder how seriously Kepler wanted his investigation of snowflakes to be taken. I mean, he sets out at the beginning to make it sound like a trifle, but he eventually delves into some pretty deep stuff, doesn't he? That's right. So one really has to read it as a great performance of everything his philosophy is about. This is very witty. Do as many word plays as possible. So all around this this notion of nothingness. He even ends it with a joke saying, you know, near secretor, nothing is to follow the end. So let's do an entertaining science that lifts the spirit. This is so important, again, because this is a moment when things are so tense. So if I can just zoom in on 1610, it starts quite positively, and the man he dedicates this to is Matthäus Wacker. Matthäus Wacker von Wackenfels, and he's an imperial advisor and courtier, and is a German who's played his cards just right. So he has converted to Catholicism, he has risen high in the court, he is someone who drives around in a carriage in Prague, whereas Kepler would be someone who's walking all the time and doesn't get 
paid much money at all. He's really impecunious, and that's of course part of that wordplay that goes on. He says, "Well, I've got nothing," meaning I haven't got money. He totals his debt so that the money the emperor owes him at this time is about three thousand florins. It's a huge amount of money. So Vaca has got a servant to knock on Kepler's door and said, look, something hugely exciting happened. Galileo in Padua has discovered four new planets. And Kepler responds to that in April, so very, very quickly saying, look, you know, I'm totally with you. In August, so it takes Galileo months to respond to this very generous pamphlet in support of his ideas. Only in August, Galileo then responds and his letter to Kepler is, I think, really one of the most competitive, mean-spirited letters in the whole history of science. So all he says is, look, I haven't got much time to write to you. I've got a huge salary now. I'm going to be at the court in Florence, and I've had enough witnesses to uh, verify what I'm saying here. But that's it. Someone who wants to say, you know, I am much more powerful than you. So, and then, personally in his life, by the end of that year, 1610, his wife is extremely ill, and in fact, in summer 1611, she dies. She's got epilepsy, she's very troubled in spirit. His children have got smallpox, uh, one of them then dies in February 1611. And meanwhile, in February, that same month, February 1611, Prague is invaded. And what this makes very clear is that what's been obvious to many for a long time now, that Emperor Rudolf is unable to govern. So he's then forced by his brother, Matthias, to abdicate in 1611. And that means that Kepler himself knows he's got to leave Prague. He's got to find a new position. So what's so extraordinary is that, you know, as his life absolutely begins to unravel, his situation could not be more precarious. He's got no money for assistance. He's got no money to have instruments like Galileo. He pulls off this very light-spirited pamphlet, which is one of the most charming pieces in the history of scientific writing. It certainly is. But in the end, Kepler couldn't answer the riddle of the snowflake's six corners. He constructs one argument after another, only to demolish them. And at the end of his treatise, he admits, I have not yet got to the bottom of this. But who can blame him? No one got to the bottom of the snowflake until modern times, because for so apparently simple a process, it's astonishingly subtle and complex. There are two things to explain, the sixness and the branching of the arms. Those branches have a recursive structure. Smaller branches sprout from the main arms, and sometimes even smaller ones from them. This identical patterning at increasingly small scales is the fingerprint of a shape called a fractal. My Fractals weren't identified as a natural form until the 20th century. Today, scientists have a pretty good understanding of how they grow, which can account for the snowflake's branchiness. But it doesn't explain the hexangular, those six points. It turns out that this has its origin in the way the water molecules in ice are packed together, rather like those globules that Kepler talked about. In the 1920s, it was discovered that this packing organises water molecules into hexagons, which gives the very fabric of ice an underlying hexagonality. 
That symmetry biases the direction in which the fractal branches grow. This idea that the geometrical forms of crystals might arise from the packing of the particles from which they are made was Kepler's most prescient insight. Towards the end of the 18th century, other scientists began to argue that the faceted polyhedral shapes of mineral crystals might be built up by the regular packing of their atoms. In the early 20th century, scientists discovered that this is exactly the case. It was found that X-rays bounced off crystals in patterns that revealed the atoms' positions. That was how the hexagons made from water molecules in ice were discovered. Today, this method, called X-ray crystallography, has been used to figure out the arrangements of atoms in many thousands of crystals, information that is crucial to designing new materials and drugs. It's because of this technique that we know the double helix molecular structure of DNA. Judith Howard of Durham University is an expert in crystallography and I spoke to her about the legacy of Kepler's snowflakes for her field. Judith began by explaining this technique for understanding the atomic structures of crystals. Yes, exocrystallography is a technique whereby you take a crystalline material and these crystals can be the size of something you can hardly see Let's start with something like a grain of salt. They can be that small, they can be much larger. By shooting X-rays at it, you then are able to collect what's known as a diffraction pattern. It's basically, if you saw it on a photograph, it would be a collection of spots. These are the diffracted beams from the atoms which comprise the crystal. The intensity of those spots, the separation of them, the number of them, and so on, we unravel and work backwards mathematically to tell us what the components of that crystal were, where the atoms are, how they're connected to each other in three dimensions. So if you imagine that you've been told that in the room that you're not allowed to go in, there are five chairs, two tables, six people, and an umbrella, where do you think they are without actually going in the room? That would be quite a challenge. You could guess. But what we're doing with crystallography is we're using a technique which allows us to go into the crystal and see exactly how the atoms are arranged, one next to the other, what the distances are. Why do we want to do that? Why is it important to know where the atoms are? It's really important because if we know the structure of a new compound, a pharmaceutical compound, a protein, a virus, no matter what material you want to take, if you know the internal structure of it, you can then begin to relate it to its function. And how does a protein work? How does a virus attack us? I mean, those are not crystallographic problems. But if we know that it does a certain thing or has a certain property, then we can relate that property and the function to the structure. And then you can start looking at pharmaceuticals, development of those. But it is super important in terms of looking at malfunction of proteins. In other words, connections to disease. Okay, so by understanding the structure of proteins at the atomic level, we can understand how they do their jobs in the cell and perhaps sometimes why they go wrong. Yes, it's the starting point because if you can see in detail the active site, i.e. where the action of that particular protein is going on, then if you're wanting to change that in some way, you need to know how you can fit a small molecule into there. So you, you either want it to be less active or more active. If you're looking at a virus structure, you might want to be able to stop its action. So again, the three-dimensional structure is the starting point for so many more 
explorations and discoveries in biochemistry and medicine. Do you feel then that this booklet of Kepler's is really part of your legacy? Yes, I think it is, because he was looking at ways of using space most effectively and how best to pack certain objects. By using the concept of close packing, which is what we call it today, you can get certain shapes, and amongst those are triangular shapes and hexagonal shapes. And so he was beginning to put these ideas of something underneath the snowflake, inside the snowflake, if you like, that caused the form that you see. And, of course, no two snowflakes are the same because the way in which they grow is not what we would call today ideal conditions. Growing a small crystal for X-ray crystallography, it may be an art, but there's a way of doing it. A snowflake comes out of the sky. The conditions vary depending on where it lands, how fast it lands. Is it cold on one side more? Is it warm on one side? Is there a wind blowing? All those conditions are not regular, and the outcome is a very irregular shape, but a beauty that is the snowflake. He made a lot of analyses of what he had seen, and then he went on to conjecture many things that, of course, are, in a sense, connected to the fundamentals of crystallography today. And at the heart of what Kepler was trying to get at was a notion of geometry and symmetry operating in the very core principles of nature. And that seems to be pretty much what crystallography is showing to be the case. Yes, he was ahead of his time. He wanted to understand what was beneath the external structure, which is what he could see. But at the time, in 1611, he had no way nor did anybody else, of being able to answer the questions which just run through his book. It's fascinating reading. And yes, I think it does certainly relate to the way in which we look at structure today. It seems as though, in one sense at least, Kepler did get to the core of what was going on in the snowflake because the key question for him was why this hexagonness of a snowflake? And he explores the notion that perhaps it's got something to do with the hexagons that you get by packing spheres together. Now, it's not quite that, but it seems we now understand, thanks to X-ray crystallography, we now understand that there is a kind of hexagonness in ice. Yes, there is. Within the ice structure, as we know today from crystallography, there are connectivities which give you hexagonal nets, if you like, of, of connections. It would sound like a simple structure. It's just frozen water. Now, what tends to be regular within the ice structures are the positions of the oxygen atoms. What is often very irregular are the positions of the hydrogen atoms. We're talking about H2O here. So there's an order disorder here, which is, again, prevalent in nature all the time. But, I mean, crystals themselves are beautiful. The shapes, the colours, the way they reflect light, you know, their external form is lovely to look at. The diffraction patterns themselves are fantastic in terms of symmetry and then the determined structure, whether it's a small structure, like something as small as penicillin, or whether it's something as large as vitamin B12. Those molecular structures in three dimensions are simply a work of art. Yes, there's a feeling for nature's artistry that runs all through Kepler's little book. Reading it gives you a sense of what it was like to live in a world arranged by cosmic purpose and design, and where nature is imbued with a spirit of invention and creativity. Yet what I find inspiring is that Kepler saw no contradiction between that vision 
and a notion that the complex beauty of a snowflake might be explained by the mechanical packing together of component parts. In fact, by something very much like our modern understanding of crystals and their forms. As Judith testifies, you can get as reductionist as you like about that question without abandoning your sense of wonder. There's millions of snowflakes. We don't know what Kepler's patron made of his New Year's gift, but I rather doubt if anyone has ever received a more exquisite Yuletide present. <laughs>